Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. This is what we're going to do, if it's okay uh, with all of you. Um, I'm going to issue a couple of notices at the beginning to our Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative and Community. Uh, We're then going to uh, reflect on the leadership of Harold Wilson, a figure who has been weirdly sort of airbrushed out of history in some respects, certainly compared with many other prime ministers. Um, And then we've got some brilliant questions uh, from many of you, uh, some of them responding to my reflections during the build-up to the Queen's funeral uh, and on other issues too. So we're going to span very widely in our time together. Now, we are back into the Liz Truss era after the pause of uh, recent days, Uh, the oddest start to a premiership ever, actually, uh, where you begin with, uh, in inverted commas, commas, all guns blazing on day one, and then there is this pause. But the the guns will be blazing, blaring loudly uh, in these days, including the days when you listen uh, to this podcast. So, Uh, On Thursday, live at King's Place, I will be reflecting on the astonishing start to the Liz Truss era, placing it into context, another of my favourite words, by looking at the arc from the Conservative coalition government of 2010, the one in 2015, all the messages about the deficit, the deficit, the deficit, And now this, Uh, by the end of this week, and indeed when some of you will be listening to this, hundreds of billions of pounds committed in borrowing one way or another. Uh, What's going on? What do we make of it all? So uh, King's Place live on Thursday, the start of the uh, Liz Truss era. It was going to be on Monday, uh, but got uh, moved for reasons that are obvious. Um, so yeah, please do come along. And if you can't, there are tickets on the King's Place website and uh, the link will be with the blurb to this podcast. But crucially, it's also streaming live. So if you can't get to London, uh, you can watch with a glass of wine and take part. There's always a chance to raise points and questions uh, on the stream as well. So do come along one way or another and we'll reflect on the the Liz Truss era. It, it is going to be a remarkable period of time. Uh, so yeah, that is this coming Thursday. So that's where I'll be reflecting on the epic dramas erupting around us this week. But now a chance to reflect, and it's by the way, highly pertinent, because one of the key questions in the coming weeks is how Keir Starmer and Labour response to what is in effect a new government whilst and he should Keir Starmer should be pushing this all the time it is actually the fourth term of a very long serving conservative government a a, a government that has been marked by leadership of one shallow revolutionary after another so unlike the one nation Toryism of the past 
But how should Keir Starmer respond? And in a way, there are many lessons from the career of Harold Wilson. Uh, the Labour Prime Minister from 64 to 1970, and again from 1974 to 1976. Uh, Wilson is so interesting because there is, in terms of Labour Prime Ministers, much reflection still and many books on uh, Clem Attlee and that 45 Labour government for wholly understandable reasons. Uh, there is still a, an, an intense focus on Tony Blair and New Labour. Uh, it, it is the frame of reference that uh, many political journalists use. They can't cope with anything further back than 97 and a millimetre to the left of uh, Tony Blair. And they see that, and, and, and so do parts of the BBC, as the only kind of route for Labour uh, the Tony Blair version from 1997. So he is reflected on a lot. But what about Wilson? See, Wilson faced uh, the challenges of leading a Labour Party that was uh, deeply divided, uh, uh, probably more divided than now in the sense that there were huge figures, titans on the left and the right in the Wilson era, and he had to manage them. He had no choice but to do so. He faced the challenge of Europe uh, and what to do about Europe. And of course, uh, uh, well, we, we talk about this. I'm, I'm going to be interviewing the senior shadow cabinet uh, member, Nick Thomas Simmons. And now, uh, Nick has written a series of books. He was uh, uh, an academic at Oxford University and um, uh, has written on Clem Attlee and Nye Bevan, books I strongly recommend, and has just written this book on Harold Wilson. And I, I've noticed some people say, well, how the heck does he have the time to do this, you know, when he's a shadow cabinet member? Well, the answer is he's found the time. And it's very important uh, to have members of the shadow cabinet, as it is in political journalism, with a memory with, with someone who can contextualise way beyond 1997. Um, and, and it is rare at the moment. Uh, but he carries that into the shadow cabinet. I mean, in the past, there would be kind of weighty figures all over the place who wrote books about big figures. Roy Jenkins, Michael Foote were writers, Tony Crossland, you know, in that, that era where Labour had all these titans all over the place. Um, but so he carries that mantle. Um, and Wilson is, uh, in a way, his most interesting uh, subject so far in the sense that Nye Bevan and Clem Attlee have been extensively chronicled and interpreted and analysed and so on. Now, Wilson, there have been some big books about him, um, but not many. And so, yeah, we got together and had a conversation about the book and uh, Wilson, the book is just out. And of course, in the context of the challenges uh, facing Keir Starmer, who is uh, an old friend of uh, Nick Thomas Simmons. Uh, and our conversation began on the extraordinary arc of Wilson's career in terms of, keep on using arc in today's podcast, don't I? Um, in terms of the way he changed as a public figure. Anyway, you'll hear that from my opening uh, uh, question in our discussion. And so we'll hear that, and then we'll come back for your 
brilliant questions on the role of the monarchy in this era, in the context of recent days, and many other topics as well. But here is my conversation with Nick Thomas-Simmons about his book, which has got an interesting subtitle, Harold Wilson, The Winner. Nick, could I begin by asking you really part of the arc of Wilson's political career? What's so interesting is that there he is, a very assiduous colleague of Beveridge's, working incredibly hard. He gets very quickly into Attlee's cabinet, president of the Board of Trade. But again, assiduous, rather sort of publicly dull as a figure. And yet there we are by 1963, Wilson the modernizer, the great charismatic kind of future-looking figure. And that leap was made without any sort of inauthentic contortions. Just begin by your assessment of how he changed, but did it in a way that appeared quite natural at the time. It's a remarkable transformation. And if you watch, and they're still available, the British Pathé footage of when Harold was the president of the Board of Trade, making announcements about loosening the wartime controls that existed, you see this very staid, stiff, formal figure with, in those days, tiny moustache as well. And you'd find it difficult to believe that in less than two decades, you would actually have this figure with the great popular touch. And he was a tremendously adaptable politician. But as you say, Steve, he did that in an authentic way. And I think his adaptability was one of his great political qualities. But I don't think you can underestimate either the influence of Marcia Williams, who worked for him from 1956, who took a view that if she didn't understand what Harold was saying, the public couldn't understand what Harold was saying, and was the one figure that would send a speech back to Harold with the word rubbish written across it, forcing him to rewrite it. But she was the one as well who encouraged Harold's sense of humour, the use of the wit in speeches, and also exercised a degree of control over it. Because when he became the leader of the Labour Party, she got rather concerned about him being compared with Mort Saal, the famous obviously American figure, and actually decided to tone down the humour a bit in his speeches, because she didn't want him to be seen purely as a figure that was using the witch. She wanted him to be seen as more serious. But for all that, and she was a profound influence, Harold looks unnatural when he's using the humour, when mm. he's using the repartee, when he's talking about the things that people came to know him for, like, you know, the Gannick's raincoats and the HP sauce, all these things he was able to carry off. And one other one other point, and I think this is such an important uh, issue, really. He started smoking a pipe in trade negotiations in the late 1940s. And the reason he did so was to pause to give himself time to think. And any politician can tell you in any interview, any moments to think are extremely useful. And that pipe, if you look at his interviews mm. in the 60s and 70s, is there. And it allows him 
he has that sense of being relaxed in interviews, that sense of being able to be assured and deal with things that came about because he often takes that pause with the mm, pipe. Mm. Barbara Castle once said that at the end of some cabinet meetings where Wilson summed up, he would light his pipe and they couldn't quite hear him as he was smoking and speaking. She wasn't quite sure what the summing up was, <laughs> which was probably his intention. But let's explore some of those things. Obviously, we're going to look at the fascinating relationship with Marcia Williams. But let's let's try and root him politically. And to do so, we could talk about all sorts of things. But I thought we would look at his resignation with Nye Bevan in the final Atlee cabinet, and in a way, a sort of totemic moment, where they resigned over the introduction of prescription charges that the then Chancellor Hugh Gatesgill wanted to pay for defence spending, amongst other things. Now, some people thought that rooted him as a Bevanite on the left of the party. But even then, there was sort of qualifications, wasn't there? Where, where do you root him in that relatively early phase in his long career, politically? I always root him on what I would describe as the pragmatic left, the pragmatic centre-left. He never had time for what he would regard as political dogma, but he was a pragmatist who did have a sense of purpose, that congregationalist background, which gave quite a strong moral tone to his politics, the scouting background, which gave this real sense of public service. And also the fact that his father suffered periodic bouts of unemployment and incidents where he asked his father for money and his father had to say, I'm sorry, but it's not available at the moment, really did affect him. He thought unemployment was a deep social evil that actually needed to be dealt with. So he, although he wasn't ideological in a strict sense, he did have these themes that ran through his career. Now, specifically in relation to the resignation and his resignation did surprise people like Herbert Morrison and others who'd not seen this side of him before. Now, the resignation comes about ostensibly on the issue of charging in the NHS, though Nye Bevan had far deeper disagreements with regard to what he saw as the increasing militarism of the government, the huge increase in defence spending that had been agreed by Attlee after the Korean War began. But Wilson managed to both do something that was politically astute because it gave him a link to the left of the party that although that link at times became frayed, it never quite disappeared. Mm -hmm. But it's also true to say that politically, emotionally, temperamentally, he had more in common with Aniram Bevan than he did with Hugh Gateskill. Things like economic planning, about which Harold was very passionate, was also a great passion of an Iron Bevan. And he had a closeness to an Iron Bevan that went back to his first ministerial job as parliamentary secretary at the Ministry of Works, where essentially his job was to source building material. Bevan was the Minister for Health and Housing, so he was essentially sourcing material to be used in Nye Bevan's housing programme. And he was very, very impressed with Nye Bevan, who in the late 1940s is at his oratorical and political peak. 
was someone that remained close to Harold. It's interesting, isn't it, the 50s? You know, you are now living through, as we all are, another long period of Labour opposition and the tensions that inevitably are generated by that. And I wonder the degree to which you think the internal divisions within the Labour Party in the 50s framed his view of the essence of leadership, which, as you write vividly, and and it put huge stress on him, was to keep this party together. And the 50s was the backdrop to that sort of thinking when he became leader in 63. It absolutely was. I'm afraid Labour in opposition has a tendency to swing pretty wildly to the left is what tends to happen. It tends to fall into factional strife rather quickly. And it usually condemns Labour to quite long periods in opposition, whether that be after 1951, after 1979, the last we are 12 years at the moment into the latest Labour period in opposition. But the 1950s experience where Harold moves away from the Bevanites in the sense that in 1954 he takes Bevan's place in the shadow cabinet and comes to an accommodation with Hugh Gateskill. He drew the conclusion that the factional strife only serves to keep Labour out of office. So what you need to do, which about, and he was an expert at this, is to manage across the Labour Party. He always wanted the different factions represented at a senior level in the party. That meant that each of the different factions felt they had a voice within whether it was the shadow cabinet initially, but the cabinet proper as well when he was in government. And also that skill, I think, is really shown so profoundly in the period of opposition from 1970 when he remarkably comes back to government in just one term. Yeah, that is staggering and and hard to imagine now, actually, a Labour leader losing an election and then staying on. And Anyway, we'll get to that bit. So he becomes leader in 63 with the sudden death of uh, Hugh Gateskill and, and, and was dazzling, really, wasn't he? In that period, very short period of opposition, of course, the election was 64, which he just won. With that famous speech, which you write about in some detail, the white hot heat of the technological revolution. Was that him? Did he sense that the art of leadership was to sort of own the future? He uses the term modernize, as Tony Blair did in the build-up to 97. Was it Marcia Williams? Was it? I know Gerald Kaufman, I think you quote it in the book, said he learned to have a sense of humor. What were the forces that brought about that election-winning Wilson. He was one of those rare political leaders that captured the zeitgeist. This was a leader who epitomized the age. He really did. And that is partly to do with style and this idea of linking science and socialism, which is very much what the white heat of technology speech is all about. It's about how science is going to transform society, about how labour is going to be at the cutting edge of the future. But one of the reasons it works so well is he is Wilson, the grammar school boy. And this is an age where he is the he's the first of the post-war prime ministers who wasn't privately educated. And the Conservatives, in a sense, opened the door for him to do that with the way that Alec Douglas Hume succeeded Harold Macmillan, because 
there wasn't even a vote of Conservative MPs at that time. Macmillan not only resigns in late 1963, he also ensures that Alec Douglas Hume is the one to succeed him. Now, Alec Douglas Hume at that time was a hereditary peer in the House of Lords who has to disclaim the peerage. And we have this period of a few weeks where the Prime Minister is neither a member of the Commons nor a member of the Lords. And a ve- remarkable thing if you think about it now came in then in the Perth and Kinross by-election in early November 1963. But of course, Harold immediately jumped on it and said an aristocratic cabal (laughs) is choosing the prime minister. And there he is, the grammar school boy who's got to where he's got to on merit, who in a sense symbolises this new 1960s world that is emerging from the 1950s, very aristocratic, dominated society. Mm. It's very interesting then. He won just in 64 and then had his famous huge victory in 66. And you kind of reclaim that government because, and indeed the 74 to 76 one, the sort of caricature is it was anticlimactic and disappointing. And there clearly were traumatic moments, which I'll come to. But you sort of list some of the social reforms, some of the economic and industrial reforms, the open university. I mean, there were quite a lot there that sort of, I don't know whether it's right, says has got lost. There hasn't been a narrative about it like there is about Thatcherism or the New Labour period in quite that way. We, we really have collectively neglected the changes both that the 1964-70 government made, but also, as I'm sure we'll come to the 1974-76, yeah. which in an even worse way, in my view, that 74-76 government's been completely Airbrushed overlooked up. and just forgotten when yeah. there's some huge reforms there. But this particular period from 64 to 70, there are social changes made that still shape our society in a huge way today. You mentioned, Steve, the the open university and the whole concept of lifelong learning, which is very much a a personal Harold project, working with an Iron Bevan's widow, Jenny Lee. But the social changes are profound. The, The Race Relations Act, actually there were two in this particular period, that outlawed for the first time in law racial discrimination. They they were first. These were groundbreaking things that that were passed. But also the abolition of capital punishment in 1965. The abolition of corporal punishment, by the way, which was still going on in our prisons, which was Mm -hmm. abolished in 1967. The end of theatre censorship. The divorce law reform of 1969. The Sexual Offences Act, which made for the first time, homosexuality was legal, which meant that you didn't have people who were unable to love who they wanted to or were waiting for the knock on the door or in that period, which is rather common, being blackmailed about your private life for fear of being exposed. And of course, the Equal Pay Act of 1970, which actually comes into effect in 1975, but nonetheless, Barbara Castle uh, and Howard Wilson, that groundbreaking piece of legislation about equality in the workplace, these are serious social changes Mm. that made a real material difference to people's lives. Why don't you think, let's step out for a second of our chronological exploration of Harold Wilson. Why don't you think there is talk of Wilsonism as there is with Thatcherism and indeed in a very different way, Blairism? Why has there never been a recognition of the kind of impact that his leadership made in those terms? I think there's a there's a couple of reasons for this. I think firstly, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of the winter of 1978-79, which came to be 
the framework through which we viewed the entire Wilson Callahan period. Mm. And of course, had Jim Callahan called an election in October 1978, who knows? Difficult to speculate, but, but we, yeah. we don't know. And what that meant is that people started to judge the 1960s and 70s on the basis of what Margaret Thatcher then does in the 1980s, that she is allowed to do eventually after the winter of discontent and after she wins a large majority in 1983. But secondly, because within the Labour Party, I think the next generation allows Wilson to be forgotten. Mm. If you look at the political debates of the 1980s, there are very few Wilson defenders mm. out mm. there. And in a sense, for reasons on both sides, I think across politics, there was interest in allowing him to be forgotten. I think I, I remember the 80s saying to people, you know, there was this figure around who totally dominated British politics for the 60s and early 70s. And they were taken aback. You know, and this was only a few years after he had resigned. Is there another reason, before we look at, again, some specifics, that Wilson's style of leadership, and I don't say this necessarily in a derogatory way, was more of a facilitator? In other words, he wasn't. You won't go back to the 60s to read passionate speeches about those social reforms. But he allowed Roy Jenkins to do it, mm. who was the Home Secretary, which was incredible, really, given his own social conservatism. Indeed. He gave him the space to do it. Uh, but, but facilitating isn't really as glamorous as the sort of e evangelical leadership of Margaret Thatcher or the very speedy reforms of Clem Attlee, a figure who's not evangelical. I know you've written the biography, but nonetheless is remembered for a whole range of major reforms over a short period of time. The, 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 the facilitator leader, it cannot be caricatured in such a flattering way, perhaps. I think it's partly that. I think it's also because things sometimes happened that for reasons of preserving unity, Harold allowed himself to be one step away from. Yeah. And I think you the, the 1960s social reforms that we've discussed, he had he wanted to stop them, he could have stopped them because he, between 1964 and very late 1967, the three dominant figures in the government were James Callaghan, George Brown, and Harold Wilson. Both James Callaghan and George Brown felt that the government shouldn't be allowing all this parliamentary time for things that, that weren't really the role of government. But Harold not only appointed Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary in late 1965, knowing Roy had that liberal agenda, he'd written about it previously, yeah. but secondly, also made sure that the parliamentary time was allowed. So Harold thought that the changes were necessary. Uh, he wasn't, you, you won't catch him making the, the sort of so huge social reform speeches, but he did, with his social conservatism, hold the Labour electoral coalition together whilst these liberal changes were being mm. made. Mm. And also, because, and I'm sure we'll come on to the European debates in a yeah, moment, absolutely. but clearly for tactical reasons, he had to take certain positions. Now, I argue that I think his strategic goal was quite consistent. But to hold the party together, mm. he had to take different tactical positions, which meant that over the course of the period he was leader, different people formed critical opinions of him. Mm. And Roy Jenkins, in his memoir, credits Wilson for giving him that job. Absolutely. And, and says that Hugh Gatesgill, his old friend, might well not have done <laughs> Absolutely. which is very interesting. There was the trauma of devaluation 
which seems to me had a big impact on him and the way he was perceived. I think, again, people forget he had quite a good press in the early 60s. But after devaluation, he certainly lost that media support. And it, it, it inevitably saps confidence, doesn't it, in a leader and perhaps within a leader as well. Yes, and it was, first of all, the fact of devaluation. And devaluation of the currency causes problems for incumbent governments. The 1949 devaluation, that Labour's out by 1951. You, you of course, remember the uh, the 1990s and the impact that the whole Black Wednesday episode had on, on John Major. But this this devaluation that happened, Harold had staved it off for quite a while. And there were actually credible reasons for doing it because he knew that you you don't just devalue and suddenly the economic problems go away he knew it would be in, be accompanied by some pretty harsh economic measures which then do come in that harsh Roy Jenkins budget of early 1968 but the other issue was the way it was presented now Harold's phrasing in that broadcast, and it's still widely famous available, very yeah. famous broadcast, yeah. about the idea that the pound in your pocket, your purse or your bank has not been devalued. Now, if you had £100 in a post office savings account in the early part of that November, you'd still have £100 later part of that November after the devaluation. But its purchasing power has been significantly diminished. So that whole broadcast became absolutely notorious for the fact that it was seen to be misleading. Harold seemed to be simultaneously announcing a devaluation at the same time saying the pound hadn't been devalued. Mm. And it really did contribute towards this image that this character was tricksy, that he mm. couldn't be trusted. Mm, which he never escaped from that no. moment on and with colleagues as well and so on. And in fact, let, let's explore that because one of the things you have to chronicle is the fact that certainly from the late 60s, he felt, and perhaps his position was increasingly precarious, talk of Roy Jenkins taking over. He made that famous speech, you may be wondering what's going on, I'm going on, I'm going and all on. the rest of it. And and, and on it went in, into the 70s as well. And he did preside over a team of titans, many of which wanted to be leader from left or right. So was he someone prone to paranoia as a character, or did he just have quite a lot to be paranoid about with that team of really big figures around him at every point of his leadership? He was paranoid, but he had a lot to be paranoid about, yeah. is the answer. <laughs> and and a lot of the evidence shows he was very justified. He was paranoid about his cabinet members plotting against him and leaking. They were doing both things. Yeah. He was paranoid about sections of the press that had it in for him. A lot of them did. There's also his, his later paranoia about the security services, but even that has justification in it. So he often did feel insecure around the position of his leadership. Now, there is an argument if you take the long view. I actually think it's far harder to dislodge leaders than people think mm. it is. 
even though we seem to be changing quite, <laughs> Prime Minister quite regularly, quite regularly at the yeah. moment. But in, if you take a long view, I think it's a lot harder to depose leaders. But nonetheless, a lot of the things he was suspicious about, most of it was crowded, in fact. Yeah, which brings us, uh, we'll come to 70, 74 to 70 in Europe. But this relationship with Marcia Williams, which she said began in the 50s, there have been so many theories about what some people call as the hold over him. But you make absolutely clear, in the end, he valued her unyielding loyalty in, in a pol political world where he didn't know whether his colleagues were going to try and push him out or not, and her political judgment. And you at one point say you place her as the most powerful woman in British politics. And whether they had an affair or not, that was the essence of it, wasn't it? It, it absolutely was. I think prior to Margaret Thatcher coming to office in 1979, she came as close to the centre of power mm. in Downing Street than any other woman did. I think she had two really huge influences on Harold. I think the first one, uh, as, as we've been discussing, is around the issue of what she gave him politically, the advice she gave him politically, whether it was in terms of the way he communicated, the appropriate use of humour, advice about cabinet colleagues, these things she could give him instinctively. The second thing she gave him, and never underestimate this in politics, she was absolutely loyal to Harold. Mm. Right? There, there may be a lot of stories about her and things she may have said or done, but you won't find any criticism mm. of Harold from Marcia. And you can see, even when she's interviewed later in the 1980s about him, she always is positive. And he always knew that she would stay with him to the bitter end. Mm. And I think those two things that she gave him made her absolutely invaluable. That isn't to say that there wasn't the volcanic eruptions, and I've discussed them in the book, mm. and the instability and the issues and that were in the inner circle. And suggesting he put a lethal extraordinary, injection into Williams. Extraordinary stuff. <laughs> <Just>. Extraordinary. <laughs> extraordinary stuff. Yeah. So there is but, that. But I think those two fundamental things, judgment and loyalty, are what binds Harold Wilson to Marcy Williams. Mm. Mm. Anyway, the two of them together with others lost in 1970 to his great surprise. I mean, he thought he was going to win that one. And nowadays, I think, you know, if you lose an election unexpectedly, a leader probably will think, oh, I've had enough and go or be forced out. Uh, he carried on and he carried on in a very interesting way. He sort of disappeared, didn't he, to write his memoirs yes. and wasn't prominent for a bit, but yet then came back in 74 to win two elections. And again, I think that was remarkable. His colleagues didn't think he was going to win in February 74, but he did in extraordinary circumstances, didn't he? Absolutely extraordinary. I think it was Roy Jenkins who said that in 1970, Roy Jenkins had wanted Labour to win so he could be Foreign Secretary. In 1974, he thought there was a personal interest in Labour losing so he could replace Wilson's leader. He said the electorate twice disagreed with my uh, political ambitions. <laughs> but Harold's defeat in 1970, he instinctively said, and then they were shocked by it. The opinion polls suggested that Labour would win. Nobody really in the media expected the Conservatives to win, but Heath pulled off that victory with a small majority of about 30. Harold, first of all, disappeared. He wrote that book, The Labour Governments, mm. 1964 to 70, and said, look, the public isn't going to want to hear from me in a substantive way. Let them have their victory. Let Heath have this honeymoon period. But at the appropriate moment, I will come back and put the pressure onto Heath. And he mm. does start doing that from the start of 1971. But of course, the huge issue he has to deal with 
internally and indeed for the country is this issue of membership yeah. of what was then the common market. Yeah. And I think both you and I are in agreement. He handled it brilliantly, really. Absolutely. I mean, he you think he was basically always in favour, uh, certainly by this point. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and yet, you know, even though they voted against as the official position when Ted Heath got us in. But as you point out in the book, he was very clever in sort of saying, on these terms, we're opposed, which gave him, of course, the space to say, on other terms, we might be in favour. And somehow around that, he got through it. I think this is a quite remarkable political achievement. He wasn't a spiritual evangelical pro-European. He was a pragmatist who took a hard-headed view. If you asked him what he was emotionally, he would say he was a Commonwealth man. Mm. But he saw in the 60s the pragmatic economic case for Britain's membership of the common market. And even if you look back at when he was the shadow foreign secretary dealing with Macmillan's first application in the early 1960s, it's a very qualified opposition that he gives, recognizing that there could be pragmatic reasons to go in with the appropriate safeguards of the mm. Commonwealth and so on. Applies again, of course, and gets rebuffed in the late 1960s. But in opposition has a very significant problem because you've got, as it turned out, the 69 Labour MPs who voted in favour of joining on the one side of which Roy Jenkins is the, the leading light. Yeah. You've also got the left in that period, led by people like later Tony Benn, actually. He wasn't yeah. anti-European at this point, but Michael Foote in particular. Now, what do you do? You've got a huge chunk of your MPs who are passionately in favour. You've got a huge chunk that are on principle against. And what Harold does at the time looks quite messy, but is actually very astute and clever, is he makes sure that at no point is the Labour Party opposed to membership in principle. And that involves sending Joe Haynes off to the Labour National Executive Committee, making all kinds of threats to resign unless people voted in a certain way on the NEC, using every method he could to make sure the Labour Party was never committed to be against common market membership in principle. But to keep the party together, he comes out against membership but on the Tory terms. Now, of course, someone like Roy Jenkins, he drove Jenkins mad with what Jenkins saw as this lack of principle. But later, Jenkins came to accept that actually this strategy does work. And I think there's a, there's a wonderful moment, which is in the book, the day after the result of the 1975 referendum is announced, where he's talking, he's got you know civil servants in and he says, you see, they say I've got no sense of strategy, but look at this. Mm, mm, yeah, it, it, I think it is remarkable and hasn't been recognised. And of course, winning a referendum has subsequently proven to be tricky. Uh, and, and Cameron, if he had taken notes from the Wilson era, might not have made some of the mistakes that he did. And, and do you know as well, there's, there's an interesting difference because if you look at the Cameron renegotiation for 2016, it completely disappears out of the 2016 referendum mm. campaign. But Harold's renegotiation, you know, some of the protections for uh, the Commonwealth, some of the changes to agricultural policy, Harold's renegotiation is actually something that is, is, is within, it's a thread within the campaign. Yeah, you, you list the renegotiation in the book. And it surprised me, actually, because I bought the line that it was totally cosmetic. There were a few things in there, weren't there, of the, substance, the uh, which has completely been airbrushed out of history. And it's interesting to read them in the book. Now, he 
left in one of the only prime ministers to choose the timing of his departure. And you can see why he was so exhausted. I mean, Barbara Castle told me late in her life that Wilson used to say to her, you just do not know the hell I went through keeping the party together on Europe. And then we had all the other things in the 70s, inflation, strikes, and etc. Do you think it was just exhaustion? Or do you, I think you do, by the idea, and it's tragic, that he already sensed his memory was fading? I think his, I think it's definitely the case that his memory was fading. And there's quite a, there's quite a sad story in the book, actually, in 1975, where he he had a he had a photographic memory this wonderful memory and had many memory tricks that he could use and yeah. one of them was that he could go around the parliamentary estate name the painter for every painting and also the year that it was painted and there's a story in the book about where he was trying this trick but actually his memory was starting to fail him on certain things just couldn't remember them now i think that is relevant but the central point here is had he won in 1970 he promised Mary he'd leave in 1972. And what happens is he comes in in 74, he does the two years, and he keeps the promise. And there's, a, there's a lovely moment where James Callaghan is about to become prime minister. He's won the leadership election of 1976. And uh, at that point, Harold is very momentarily still prime minister, but not Labour Party leader. And Tony Benn is in a conversation with Marcia Williams and James and says to James Callaghan, you know, what if what if Harold just refuses to resign? You know, what's going to happen? And James Callaghan said uh, Mary would never allow that. <laughs> yeah, so he kept to it, but in the context of 74, 76, around 70, 72. It's interesting, you chronicle the sort of afterlife. And uh, although the end is terribly sad, he actually got up to quite a lot. He wrote a lot of books. You quote from the chat shows he hosted yes. and things like that. So there was still, you know, he wasn't that ill in 76 because he he did a lot. And pr we, you were interviewed by David Frost's son the, at your book launch, reminding us of prime ministers on prime ministers. So, so there was a, a, an after political life, albeit in the context of declining health. There definitely was, and, and it was also evidence of his continuing popularity with the British public. Remember, he was on the Morecambe and Wise Christmas show. Yeah. Morecambe and Wise, hugely popular in that period. He's on the Christmas show in 1978, and he gets criticism for his Friday night, Saturday morning chat, which is not great with auto cue and things like that. But if you have a look at the kind of guests that he gets on, including, by the way, one episode I was delighted to discover where Mary is on the show reading yeah. her poetry, which is a quite poignant thing to yeah. to watch. But he continued to be active and continued to be popular with the public, the great prime minister on prime ministers. Where there's a lot of criticism, I have to be fair here, of the text itself. Mm. I, think, I think it's A.G.P. Taylor yeah. possibly reviewed this, who was picking out factual errors and things yeah. like that. But the actual programs themselves, which were with David Frost, the programs deserve a bit of a dusting off and coming out because it's a rare example of where you've got someone who's actually held the job of prime minister and understands its pressures, commenting quite freely by now because he, he's retired on many of the other holders of the office. Just finally, Keir Starmer said in the leadership contest, his model of Labour leaders, he cited Harold Wilson. Now, I can see tactically why he did that. It wasn't fashionable to cite Tony Blair, but you cite a winner, so that's the, he's the only other one. But, you know, there are lessons, aren't there, from the Wilson era. He, he, you call him the winner 
four elections out of five, adapting to changing times and him changing as a public figure, but doing so in a way that seems seamless. And also, the in the end, the importance of party unity. I know Keir Starmer feels the pressure to be seen to be not Jeremy Corbyn taking them on and so on. But in the end, there are, I mean, do you think there are lessons for Keir Starmer in your book, frankly? <laughs> now, I know you're in the shadow cabinet, so you've got to be, you know, and a good friend of his, but are the lessons? <laughs> Absolutely, there are lessons. And I think this is always the balance, Steve, isn't it? Because history never perfectly repeats itself. And I, I voted and supported and have known Keir Starmer for, for many years. And Keir Starmer, in my view, is going to be the third winner. How, since 1951, Harold Wilson, Tony Blair, Keir Starmer. But of course there are lessons here. And I, I was asked a question quite recently when, when I was out on the media and they said, well, the government, this government's got a majority of 80. You're not going to overturn a majority of 80 in one palm. And I said, well, hang on a minute. Harold Wilson actually faced a majority of 100 mm-hmm. in 1959, but overturned it by 1964. And this parliament does have this feel now, we're 12 years into the parliament, this is the kind of position that Wilson took over the party in. But Harold showed really this balance between, he had served in Clem Attlee's cabinet, he learned the lessons of Clem Attlee, but was forward-looking as Harold Wilson and just one final question. In all the reflections on the Queen, one of them has been about her relationship with prime ministers. And many people have said, I don't know what evidence, that she saw Harold Wilson as her favourite or what after Winston Churchill. Is that is that true, do you think, as far as we can – how do we know these things? Because she never – We'll never, public. we'll never know 100%. And we're, we're never going to get, you know, imagine the memoirs, how Queen Elizabeth II's memoirs would have uh, sold. <laughs> yeah. But what we do know is that she only attended farewell dinners for two of her prime ministers, Winston Churchill, and the other one is Harold mm. Wilson. We also know that the weekly audiences, and we've had quite good coverage of this of late, haven't we, yeah. from the, the, the current living prime ministers. Harold would often have more than one a week. He was also someone who liked the Queen to be aware of what he was doing before he actually did it. And there was a lot of reporting in the 1960s about how greatly this was appreciated by the palace, that you had this prime minister who wasn't just turning up with, with a fait accompli. This was someone who actually felt that he wanted to involve the Queen. And he, of course, did have a deep attachment to the crown. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Nick Thomas Simmons, thank you. I mean, Harold Wilson, in my view, is one of those fascinating sort of post-war figures, and you have brought him to life. It's, it's a wonderful read. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Steve. So there we are. That was a conversation I had some time ago with uh, Nick Thomas Simmons about his uh, terrific book on Harold Wilson, which I strongly recommend. And we could have gone on, actually, about the lessons for now. Um, But uh, next week, it's the Labour Party conference, and I'll be reflecting then more on how Keir Starmer should respond and the rest of the Shadow Cabinet and the rest of the Labour Party to the challenges posed by Truss and the opportunities offered uh, by Liz Truss. No doubt it will come up at King's Place as well uh, this coming Thursday. Uh, Say tickets available uh, to come live. And, uh, of course, there's the live stream. Book it now and then get the wine chilled or whatever. But now to your brilliant questions. (music) 
Now, a lot of the questions uh, relate to uh, what I was saying last week about the contradictory banalities, really, of much of the media coverage of recent uh, days. Um, and funnily enough, already, I bet by the time you listen to this, in, in, some of you will be thinking, well, you know, what was, what was all that about? Uh, a, a spell is cast by the potency of never-ending media coverage and, and much else. Um, but when the spell fades, it, you kind of do wonder. But anyway, um, many of these questions came in while the spell was still being cast. And some, as ever with all of you there, they're kind of brilliant and interesting and got me thinking. And uh, there's quite a lot of disagreement in our cooperative. So let's begin with uh, Richard Pinchbeck, who really got me thinking. Uh, he said, witnessing this week's events with the passing of the Queen and the proclamation of the King, I can't help but contrast the speed and effectiveness of the transition of this aspect of the British state with the seeming decline, lethargy and unproductiveness of so many other elements of British public services. And it's true, whatever you think, think of what happened over those 10 days. Um, it was incredibly smooth and it was logistically complicated. Uh, and the answer, Richard, is planning. There is something very weird about the psyche and ideology in, in the case of uh, quite a lot of Tory politicians in the modern Tory party, uh, which hails um, and loves uh, the smooth rituals and logistical smoothness of uh, royal events and equally uh, find themselves thrilled when uh, they become involved in some way or another in the need for military action, when they pull levers and things happen. Um, and this event, uh, the, uh, the Queen's funeral, was was planned to the second and has been constantly uh, revised and prepared for four decades. And planning works. But then when you suggest in wider arguments about, isn't it, should we not be planning for the NHS? Should we not be chronicling the staff shortages and planning for how we address the staff shortages and so on? Um, and, and, and there's a sort of look of bewildered horror and, and it's all a bit anachronistic and the past, but that's what it is, planning. Um, and I think in that kind of space, Keir Starmer's got an opportunity. Planning is not some dated uh tyrannical statist stifling theme it's about just being efficient in how we deliver things uh, and planning for it carefully budget resources structure um, and anyway that th that is an example of meticulous meticulous planning thank you richard uh, maggie fletcher says, I've long felt that the monarchy infantilizes us as a country. The response to the Queen's death has intensified my view. I knew it would be treated as an exceptional event. However, this beats all my expectations, and I'm having it filtered because I'm away uh, in Italy. Uh, yeah, you see, it, you've got it filtered, but it, it was... Uh, continuous and inescapable and scepticism uh, was very difficult to express and find space for. Um, and um, I think what might happen, Maggie, in the days to come, not the, the days, but months to come, is a kind of more considered reflection 
on what happened over the last week. Um, but maybe not, frankly. Um, uh, you know, the, the, it, the, what is absolutely clear is parts of the... Uh, I mean, just imagine if um, those who turned up for the queue um, for days uh, turned up for demanding uh, the right level of resources for the NHS, demanding a proper public transport service and at affordable prices. Um, uh, but that kind of thing is a bit more less easy, frankly, uh, than in inverted commas sharing in something. Um, thank you, Maggie. Now, a very different view from the legendary Lawrence Holvey. Lawrence Holvey is a regular attender of uh, rock and roll politics in London and indeed at the Edinburgh Festival and famously at the Edinburgh Festival uh, in 2019 in the audience became Dick Brain, the leader of the UKIP party at the time. A more vivid example of the fleeting nature of politics I cannot think of. Uh, not Lawrence, Dick Brain. Where's Dick Brain? Can any of you remember him? Anyway, Lawrence uh, is a a, a royalist and he says, uh, the consequences uh, of uh, the event's recent days are benign. An outpouring of grief amongst many is a collective grief on a departed queen who is whatever the grieving person wants her to be inside of them, dashed hopes, their own mortality, and serves an important cathartic function. We then have a rebirth in a king, and again, people will collectively join together in their own rebirth as they focus on a new human object, different but useful, in which many in a nation can collectively uh, fantasize. Uh, yeah, well, that's interesting. It's, it's sort of, um, uh, uh, what is it? Is that Freudian, Lawrence, that, that interpretation of events of recent days? Um, but there we are. There's another take. Um, and... Um, yeah, uh, uh, Lawrence says he um, listens to the podcast whilst pole vaulting. Thank you very much. Uh, see you at King's Place, amongst many other things. Um, okay, let's uh, move on. Uh, the Reverend Canon Paul Abathnot writes, um, saying, um, to worry about what she defined or didn't define is a bit of a red herring, in my opinion. Uh, someone living, see, because I was going on about did she define the era, the Elizabethan era last week for new listeners. Um, anyway, uh, did uh, someone living a vocation doesn't need to define anything. They simply need to be, not to do. I wouldn't worry too much about what she did or didn't do or what she defined. The fact is she spent her life being the monarch and was rather good at it. Yeah, well, that's, uh, again, an, uh, an interesting interpretation. And in, in, You cannot extrapolate beyond the doing, the being. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Paul. Uh, Philip Gilfus writes, as uh, as someone, oh yeah, we, are we going on something else? No, we're going on this the same theme. Sorry, Philip. Uh, as someone who was a local councillor, I do know the people. <laughs> yeah, this is again about kind of rational secular politics and the reverence for the monarch. Um, so Philip was a local councillor. I do know the people aren't moved solely through manifestos and policy announcements. That's, that is true, uh, true enough. If one doesn't think about people's emotions and community attachments, then one will not be successful in elective 
politics. We all mourn in our own ways. We all mourn our country, even if it doesn't personally touch us. Now, if one is anti-monarchical and sees the whole thing as a disgusting, overblown pomp and circumstance, that's a valid opinion. Um, but Philip thinks uh, differently. Do we want a president, an even more powerful prime minister? Philip, you raise interesting points, not least the last one, because quite a lot of the time we do have a very powerful prime minister who is almost presidential these days until a party turns on them. Uh, Look at the case of Boris Johnson, who a year ago was omnipotent in his power. Um, but um, yeah, I, I take your point. There's see a lot of pro uh, pro monarchy uh, stuff coming through, but not from our regular correspondent in France, Dominique Jewell. Can I be alone in wondering who or what is driving the wall to wall coverage of the death of the Queen to the extent of newspaper articles on the significance of the pearls on a brooch worn recently by the newly appointed Princess of Wales? Yeah, what is driving uh, the media coverage is is a interesting question that I think I explored a bit last week um, but I kind of bump into a lot of people who think it has been ridiculously excessive and of course they start talking about a brooch Dominique because they've talked about everything else and most of the people talking don't know these people Uh, that's the big difference when there's a huge political crisis which anyway by the way touches people's lives far more than uh, the death of the Queen, um, practically, in an impactful way. Um, and the talking heads have come on during a political crisis, although quite often are pretty uh, shallow and limited. Um, they do know these people, whereas here people come on and, you know, as if they kind of, uh, you know, knew the Queen incredibly well and, you know, they talk about the sense of humour and stuff. And then it, all it is is references back to you know, Paddington and that kind of thing. Uh, Thank you, uh, Dominica. Uh, Yeah, Matthew Ryder writes, on a slightly different topic, I was struck by the recent picture uh, in the newspapers of our six former prime ministers standing together when they attended the accession council at which King Charles was formally proclaimed monarch. Between them, this group of ex-prime ministers must have so much wisdom and experience in political and world affairs, and yet we seem to have a culture that discredits prime ministers as soon as they leave office. I think this is not only disrespectful, but also a waste of their talents. Why do you feel this happens? Uh, In the US, by contrast, many presidents continue to play an active role in public life. Um, Yeah. uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, Matthew said, I've been listening to the Rock and Roll podcast in July. Quite late coming to it, Matthew. Uh, Been a faithful listener ever. ever since oh thank you they've become one of the highlights of the week thank you i hope i qualify as a member of the collective after that matthew emphatically so very high up actually in the there is a hierarchy um yeah the role of uh, ex-prime ministers is um is vague in britain and uh one factor i think uh, was the decision of blair and cameron uh to leave the House of Commons immediately, they stop being Prime Minister. Uh, so you, you know, that is the that should be the platform for former Prime Ministers. Um, but and and actually, they are consulted quite often by current Prime Ministers. Um, you know, at, at certain key moments. So, but 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 their wider role is ill-defined. But again, I think that's because uh, they they get this job so young these days so when they leave um you know that they're still young um or become leaders if not prime minister young so 
Porky Keir Starmer has got two former Labour prime ministers hovering over him, still very uh, vibrant um, and, um, you know, uh, trying to influence him in various ways, as well as trying to help. Um, and and the same with Liz Truss. You know, she can't move for former Tory prime ministers. Um, and they will play a role in different ways. Uh, now, to change the subject, Paul Cooper has been wondering about speakers in the House of Commons. Apart from the last two, many of us may struggle to name predecessors. I can think of Betty Boothroyd. Yeah, she was a formidable speaker, uh, but would struggle to uh, remember anyone else. Speakers follow set procedures and rules, yet still find time to impose their own personalities on the job. Does this add or subtract from the way Parliament runs or behaves? The current speaker does seem to take criticism from some commentators of being a bit weak. Well, Paul, the role of the Speaker, uh, most of the time, frankly, is relatively straightforward. Um, Where it becomes quite significant is in a hung Parliament, where a government struggles at times to win votes. And that's really why John Burko became such a controversial uh, Speaker uh, in terms of the House of Commons, and so annoyed the conservative governments at that time um, he kind of got the blame for the fact that they couldn't always prevail but the basic reason they couldn't always prevail was that there was a hung parliament um, and 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 that produces sort of knife edge commons votes and the speaker's decision on what amendments are called become much more significant most of the time it is ceremonial but they they kind of in a way it's a bit monarchical you know they are there a constant i remember george thomas in the thatcher era uh, had a wonderful welsh voice and was a labor mp but apparently became a devotee of margaret thatcher's um and yeah you, they're just around you know and certainly john burke was very much around um so they have a role but on the whole it's not a controversial one until hung parliaments prevent uh, governments from prevailing. Oh yeah, now this is the biggest news for some time. Geraldine Henley writes, Steve, look who's here. And she uh, has sent me the cutting. Ministerial, non-cabinet ministerial appointment. Lee Rowley, undersecretary at levelling up Housing and Communities. Wow. Now, for new listeners wondering whether uh, Geraldine and I have cracked up, um, long ago, someone at one of the King's Place shows pointed to Lee Rowley as a possible Tory leader in the future. Three days later, I hadn't even heard of him, he got into the government. Um, That was ages ago. And now look, he's at the levelling up department. He backed Badenoch, who's the in thing in the Tory party. Um, We've got to keep an eye on Rowley. I hadn't clocked that he had been moved to an even more prominent position. Uh, Thank you very much for alerting us all. Uh, 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 We're going to have to keep our eye out. Uh, Venetia Kane, who uh, expresses in great detail her 
uh, that she's a fervent monarchist. Uh, we're what Harold Wilson would call a broad church on the subject of the monarchy uh, in uh, in this audience uh, here. Uh, but she also sit now. Venetia came uh, worked in the Treasury, so it's interesting on the whole truss era that is erupting around us this week. Uh, finally, on the borrowing, I do wish the media would explain that it's not the debt that counts, but paying the interest on it. I heard the amount that we have to pay to service the national debt, and I can't remember whether it was half or double what we pay for the NHS, NHS each year. Whichever, it's horrendous, a money that could be doing more and useful things. Every penny that Truss and Quartang add to the national debt will have an interest cost added to it. Yeah, that's it. You see, Venetia, Venetia uh, is speaking from experience at the Treasury, which Quartang uh, and uh, Truss have dismissed as Treasury orthodoxy. Now, actually, when I come to look at the Truss era, I will explain my doubts, Venetia, which you will disapprove of, about Treasury orthodoxy. Um, but there's no doubt the scale of their borrowing for tax cuts is just utterly reckless. Um, and also to protect the uh, profits of the energy companies. But I say more of that on Thursday at King's Place or on the live stream. So you, we, can, we can all be part of that. Uh, Noah Keat is another uh, fan of uh, uh, the monarchy and the Queen's political effectiveness. And he wonders whether it comes from those changes being behind closed doors. For example, a number of commentators suggested the international reverence and respect to the Queen was sometimes crucial in bilateral negotiations and diplomatic discussions. Um, and will this be the same with King Charles? Well, he will have that role of uh, smoothing things over at key moments and so on. But as I suggested last week, for example, with the Northern Ireland pr peace process, rightly, uh, this was a political initiative and politics drove it um, and the key players from the British government the Irish government the various parties in Northern Ireland were key now say that the Queen uh, had a minor role at key moments which were hugely respect uh, appreciated Northern Ireland as tributes have made clear but it's it's the hard grind of democratic politics I think um, which either uh, helps in diplomatic situations or hinders, as I think we're about to find out with the Northern Ireland Protocol. But thank you very much, Noah. Um, Connor Jones says, um, I know you aren't a fan of the term our money from when Margaret Thatcher used to criticise Labour's spending plans. But in this case, I think Labour should borrow it. By bringing forward her tax-cutting budget, Truss leaves an open goal by essentially admitting that the government has lots of money to spend while spending it on corporation tax and, and national insurance cuts. Yeah, I, I agree, Connor. This, there are challenges in what's happening for Labour, but huge opportunities um, if they frame the arguments excessively, accessibly, and effectively. Uh, more of that next week, Connor, I uh, promise. It's the Labour Conference next week. Uh, Russell Shackleton says, uh, loving the podcast, looking forward to the live stream next week. Oh, Russell, great. See you there, so to speak. Hope you can make it actually live at some point, as in 
in the building. Um, I'm interested in your views on the coverage of the death of the Queen and the succession of King Charles. On the one hand, I hear much of the media criticising Russian media for having news and analysis programmes made up entirely of Putin or government supporters. Then, on the other hand, the coverage on UK TV, radio, etc. this week seems to have been made up entirely of guests or experts supporting the monarchy. A French friend of mine said he was surprised to hear that everyone in the UK supported the monarchy. Yeah, well... It's difficult for the BBC, uh, who has also planned their coverage with the same um, obsessive meticulousness for decades um, this week, because I've talked about it before, they are so scared of being on the front page of the Daily Mail, being attacked for any lapse, as the Mail would see it, for one second of deference and uh, reverential homage and sadness um, that it wasn't the time when they were going to give voices to anybody else. But as I say, I doubt it will happen, but it might happen uh, when the, the spell is no longer cast. Uh, uh, some deeper reflections on what this tells us about this uh, country and um, a wider range of voices from uh, the, beyond those that... Um, were kind of sentimental and banal, uh, really, in my view, um, in recent times. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, James Stevens says, uh, listen to many of your podcasts, but the latest one about the description of the uh, uh, Queen's reign as consequential, da-da-da, or not, and the idea of her longevity being epoch-making made me think. But given what you said, is it astonishing to you that nearly two-fifths of the country think a change of monarch is more consequential than a change of a prime minister? Yeah, James sent me the data for this. It is, it is, this is what worries me, you see. The, the attention is so, uh, and energy, emotional energy, is so focused on the royal family um, that I, I fear voters, you, you know, are more bothered by that than uh, elected politics, um, some voters. And of course, the change of prime minister is more consequential. And yet two fifths, according to one poll, didn't think so. They thought a change of monarch was. Uh, a monarch cannot do anything in policy terms to change lives. Um, and and this is the area that worries me. But anyway, um, uh, we, we we're moving on to the Truss era, aren't we? And the return to, I was going to say normal politics, but it's abnormal politics. But thank you for alerting me to that data, James. It's disturbing in my view. Uh, Andrew Anderson from Edinburgh says, I think it's now unlikely that Scotland would keep the monarchy for any significant period of time if Scotland votes for an independence referendum. The SNP will probably separate the issue for tactical reasons, but support for the monarchy was already down to 45% under the Queen and will now fall further. I tend to agree with Tom Nairn, who is a Scottish writer, of course, an academic, and his arguments in The Enchanted Glass that we cannot become a more modern and fairer society without addressing the epitome of inherited uh, privilege. So there we are. There's a view, uh, one view from Scotland. Of course, you know, I'm going to be sound like the BBC now. It's not the only view. Many have turned out um, to um, uh, pay homage and show their respects or whatever the appropriate terms are. But anyway, so there's what a range 
What a range. What a broad church, like the Labour Party, uh, the rock and roll politics community have many different views, uh, but we bring them together and talk about them and analyse them, and that's the way forward. Uh, to go back to Harold Wilson, who I think uh, is a real model, by the way, to come to modern uh, politics again, but how you manage uh, a party with so many different strands to it. Um, anyway, uh, look, we got what what a lot we've got through. We haven't even focused on the Liz Truss era. I hope you will be able to join me at King's Place, either in the concert hall or uh, on the live stream um, on Thursday, where we can start to begin to make sense of it all. And I say uh, next week's Labour Party conference, I'll be reflecting on uh, some of the issues around that. And indeed, as said earlier, how Labour should respond to uh, trust. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Have a good week. It's going to be uh, a week where politics begins to take shape in in, in, in quite extraordinary ways. Anyway, take care. See you soon. Hope to see you at King's Place. Bye.